When you live to ticket before you kick it, it's pretty important that you power your adventure with the right nutrition. Not just when you decide to take on the biggest physical and mental challenge of your life, like I did retracing the 1928 Tour de France, but also as a part of everyday living. Working overtime on a double shift, running the kids all over town to their sporting events, adding a few extra miles to your weekly hike, or getting sleep deprived with a hectic travel schedule. I'm proud to announce Bucket Nutrition is now an official sponsor of our podcast and just for you, giving a 10% discount on all Bucket Nutritional products. Go to Amazon.com and use promo code Bucket10, that's Bucket with an IT, 10, for a 10% discount on Bucket Nutritional products. Great tasting, high performance nutrition to help you take it before you kick it. This is part two of my interview with Robert Greene, a best-selling author and speaker known for his groundbreaking and life-changing books on strategy, power, and seduction. Robert's written five international bestsellers, The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, The 50th Law, Mastery, and The Laws of Human Nature. Green's books are hailed by everyone from business leaders, historians, to the biggest musicians in the industry, including Jay-Z, Drake, and 50 Cent. Robert Greene says that he wants to get under your skin and change the way you look at the world. I knew I couldn't go back. Changes your you just life. put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. She stuck even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week, I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators, people who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. If you spent a year working on a project, writing a book, mm. creating a film, it's going to be boring and tedious, and you can see your friends out there partying and playing games and having more fun than you. But the year is over, you've sold your movie. You feel incredible pride that you did this. You show that you have this capacity. Now suddenly money is coming to you and that your friends have wasted all this time. It's a much richer pleasure, that sense of fulfillment that came from those little 300 little sparks of pleasure that you spaced out over the course of the year. Now you have something deep and lasting and it will lead to something else in your life. In the second part of my interview with this brilliant writer, we go deeper into how all of us have the potential to attain mastery. But before we go into this fascinating topic, which made me completely rethink the way people rise to the top, Robert reveals why his book, The 48 Laws of Power, was banned from prison. That is a book that was so powerful, in essence, that they didn't want it read in prison. Yeah. It, it had that much impact. Some, I guess, who, someone in the, in, 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 the corrections facility must have picked up the book and read it. I mean, how did it filter down that the book was so powerful? Well, I, I had a recent one that's even better than that. My book, The 33 Strategies of War, which is kind of my version of the art of war, yes. is banned in China. You know, as far as I know, prisoners are human beings, and therefore the grace of God, go you or I, we could easily have been somebody who was sent to prison if a few things had gone differently in our lives. Right. So they're human. And prison is the most brutal, in the United States, probably much different in New Zealand, prison in the United States is the most brutal environment on the planet, at least as far as I know. I'm sure there are other prisons in places like China that are just as bad, but it's an extremely brutal environment. 
You know, it's naked power in its raw, most raw form. And I've had a lot of emails from people in prison. I've corresponded with them. And they've explained to me very clearly why the book is read, why it helps them, how it's been able to help them defend against some of these very psychotic people in there, or even wardens who are extremely nasty and sadistic. And so, you know, it's a book that can help them kind of navigate this very, very difficult environment. And sure, there are probably some people, I'm not painting myself as a saint, I'm sure there are people in prison who've used the book for bad purposes. I don't deny that. But most of the emails I got of people saying, God, that book saved my life, thank you. Not only did it save me from dealing with horrible people, but it got my life on track, and now I'm studying to be this or that, and I'm going to reform myself kind of thing. So prison is not a system that's meant now to reform people. Yeah. It's, it's punitive. And so they don't want this kind of knowledge out there. And there's some very dangerous things going on right now. In the, in the Pennsylvania system of corrections, in their penal system, where my book is banned for sure, all my books are banned, they're now creating a kind of Kindle for prisoners. Because prison is a big business now. It's a huge business in this country. And now they're creating like a Kindle for prisoners, which on the surface looks great. You, you pay $100 for this device, and you've got 3,000 books on it but they've selected the books that you can read. There's no Martin Luther King, there's no Malcolm X, there's none of my books, there's no books on politics. It's all like Harry Potter and things that are kind of, kind of put lull you to sleep sort of thing. So, uh, and then it costs like twice the normal price to download a book than it would for Kindle. It's a business thing, but they're censoring what you can read and what you can't read. So, you know, very dangerous. It does speak to the power of your book because like I said, it's had a huge effect on me. Oh. Um, some of the laws, uh, this is something that uh, I made note of here. Never outshine the master, never put too much trust in friends, learn how to use your enemies, learn how to use their jealousy, conceal your intentions, have uh, behavior with no consistency. And I, I, think, uh, I think the idea of reading a book that helps you that truly helps you in your life and be better as a human being there's nothing more powerful and as a writer when people give you feedback that they come up to you and they tell you this book changed my life what does that feel like is that it's, do you it's you talk, what keeps me alive it keeps me going it makes it all worth it. it makes all the pain worth it you know like um i, I don't want to i'm not fishing for sympathy but the last book literally one month after i wrote that chapter about death yeah dealing with it i nearly died i had a stroke and if my wife hadn't been in the car i'd be dead right now i wouldn't be here talking to you or i would have suffered complete brain damage so um you know the five years that it took to write that book took a huge toll on me and i've been asked you know was it worth it would you've gone back and sacrificed the book for your health but those moments where people come and tell me, and I'm not trying to be sentimental or saccharine, because it's true. When people tell me that, it makes it worth it to me. It's so much, it's why I write the books. You know, of course I write to make a living and I have a mortgage. You know, I, I'm honest here about that. But the main reason I write it is to connect to people. I really have a great need to help them with their problems. And when, when I get that feedback from people that it has helped, it really is the greatest feeling of all. One of the things you're more famous for 
is because of somebody else famous, 50 Cent. Uh, and that was really fascinating for me to hear about how you collaborated with him. Mm -hmm. He came to you. He, he, he approached you. Yeah. And was talk, he, he told you just how much, again, his, your, book had, your books had affected him? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's not every cool. day you get a call for 50 Cent. Well, I first got called by his literary agent who then set up a meeting with me, with him in New York. And it was kind of a great moment in my life because I, was, I came by myself and it was in the back room of the steakhouse on Madison Avenue. <sighs> and he was with his whole kind of his posse. posse. And I was by myself and I was a little bit intimidated. I didn't know what to expect. He's a really, really nice guy, and we got we got along really well. Very smart, I understand. Very smart, very street smart, but smart in other ways as well. Very strategic, and he, you know, he said because he was grew up on the streets of Southside Queens, he was a drug dealer at the age of nine. His his mother died, who was also a drug dealer when he was very young, and he then got into the music business when he's eighteen, seventeen years old. And he said nothing on the streets had ever prepared him for the music industry. It was the most brutal, ruthless environment he'd been to. It was nothing compared to the streets of Queens. Isn't that where, crazy to hear? Well, in the streets of Queens, you kind of knew who was crazy, who wasn't, who was, who was murderous, who wasn't. Who your but enemies in, were. Who your enemies were. But in the music business, you couldn't tell. And the 48 Laws really, really helped him deal with that kind of brutal environment. So that was sort of how he positioned the book. And, you know, um, we talked about it earlier in, in, in reference to the laws of human nature and sort of seeing people, not seeing their differences, kind of seeing the common humanity and what connects you to them. And I thought, here's somebody who comes from the opposite educational and socioeconomic background. I'm a middle-class Jewish boy from Los Angeles. Here's this kid who grew up in the worst ghetto, in one of the worst ghettos in the United States. And yet we had a bond, we connected. I try to decide what is it about 50 that makes him so powerful and interesting. And I decided he's fearless in life, but not your common brand of fearless of like, oh, bullets don't frighten me, but rather not afraid of failure, not afraid of doing things by himself, not afraid of what other people say about him, a kind of fearlessness that we could all benefit from. Yes. So that book that we wrote together is kind of a meditation on the power that you can have by overcoming these sort of 10 primal forms of fear that people have. And this is also something that is illustrated in the book uh, Mastery, where y you talk about the idea of trying things and, and failing. There seems to be a real stigma where there's this analysis paralysis with people where they don't want to try something because they're worried about failing. But to be a master, you have to fail. You have to try to succeed. And it, it amazes me how many people just don't want to try because they're worried about that failure. It's seen as a negative. Yeah. And it really isn't. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, if you look at your own life, I know with my own writing, those moments where you make mistakes, if you pay attention to them, they're extremely eloquent. I'm talking about in your work, in your craft, not just necessarily with people, but also with people. They're extremely eloquent. They, they're, that's where you can really learn. You're not going to learn very much from your success. You're going to learn from what you did wrong and the feedback that you get from it. So um, for me personally, 
that book that I did with 50 Cent, I had a version of it, a version 1.0, that was not good, that publishers weren't very happy with. It was the first kind of failure I had. You know, it didn't work, it didn't click. And the problem was, was that I wasn't being myself. I was trying to fit him and trying to fit into his world and create a book that was kind of more him than me. And what I learned from that was that my strength is just being myself, is letting my own weirdness, my own ideas, my own uniqueness coming through and not being afraid of that. So I learned that by six months of making a, a bad book. And then I had to hurry up in one year, rewrite the whole thing, which I did. And so if you want to be like a successful entrepreneur, if you want to start a podcast or whatever it is, you've got to just go out and do it. It's by doing it that you will learn. It's by making something, by building something with your own hands that you will learn, you know, what works, what doesn't work. Go out and try. And I talk about the greatest entrepreneur, American entrepreneur probably of all time, is Henry Ford, who basically revolutionized the automobile, which revolutionized our lives. Was it three times he failed? Three times he failed. And prior to that, nobody had ever failed once and recovered because the automobile industry required so much money, so much capital to get involved that if you failed once, your reputation was tarnished. You would never get money again. And he somehow got it a second time because he was a very crafty salesman. And then they failed the second time. And then he got a third investor. And basically, you know, it was through what he did wrong that he learned how to finally get it right, how to create the modern factory system, the, the assembly line system, which revolutionized the automobile yeah. industry. And Nobody he said, had ever thought to, to tackle manufacturing that way, right. where you had the specialists along the line, where you was, that Henry Ford assembly line technique. Nobody, right. had, Nobody had done that before. And he um, but basically said, it was by failing, it was only by failing that he learned how to get it right and that failure was the best school of all. So, you know, if you're thinking, well, I want to start a business, I have a great idea, but I'm going to wait two or three years until I have money, till my parents help me, until this. Don't wait. Start before you think you're ready. That's going to be your best education. You're going to learn by doing. I, I like what you say in the book, too, about sitting in the in in the process where you harden yourself mentally to just sit with the mundane nature of trying to make something work yeah and that we need to practice that more and understand that to achieve you have to go to that horrible boring ugly place that place you talked about with your writing where some days it's just you know getting yeah. into that routine and you think oh i'd rather go to the beach but i gotta do this yeah i mean you know this is the part where you would think my books would fail because everybody tries to write about shortcuts to success. Yeah. You know, here's your, how you can hack your way. Simple ways, to, here's seven simple ways to create your own business. Right, <laughs> right. And here I'm telling you, no, I'm sorry, that's a fairy tale. It's gonna require 10,000 hours of accumulated Blood, hard, sweat, tears, concentrated your energy, <laughs> your health. There are no shortcuts. There's one shortcut, but that's not much of a shortcut, which is having a good mentor. And that's the only way. And yet, you know, it resonated with people because I'm being realistic. 
What I talk about in the book is how the human brain functions, how we learn, and it's a process. It's a process that involves literally laying neurological pathways, connections in the brain between various things, various skill sets, various ideas and associations. And if you build up enough pathways, enough neural connections in the brain by doing things constantly and repeating them over and over again, a point will be reached. The famous 10,000 hour rule, which is a great study, one of the greatest studies ever because it's very real and it's very powerful. You will reach a point where all of that practice and apprenticeship and tedious repetition will turn into something. Suddenly a, a light bulb will go on in your head and you'll be able to make connections in the brain that are much faster and quicker and intuitive and creative, but you won't get there if you're impatient. Yeah, and you, that's where you become fluid, as you were saying. You become, then you can start to play, like a jazz musician who gets so good, they get to a point where they can, everything is so instinctive, then they right. can layer on top of the basic stuff. <laughs> well, the best metaphor of all is chess. <clears throat> the 10,000 hour rule was really mostly based on studying chess players, but it was also musicians and other people in different areas. But chess was the main thing, because what is chess? It's learning patterns yeah. of the game, of playing. You've played so Seen many 12 times. 12 moves ahead and all of that. Right, so if you've put in 10,000 hours of playing chess, Think of how many moves you have seen, how many patterns you've absorbed in your brain. How many opponents you've played against. Right, yeah. Understanding people's different psychology, etc. And so what happens at that 10,000 hour point, and, they, and they've determined this through test after test, is that something clicks in the brain and suddenly you're not seeing the moves that the person is making, but you're seeing the whole chessboard as this dynamic force field of two people fa facing each other. The whole board makes sense as opposed to each piece. It's like a quarter. You see the whole. Yeah. yeah. And now you're able to see 12 moves in advance. Mm. You're seeing further than your opponent. You can start to become creative. There's this quote, you say, we imagine that creativity and brilliance just appear out of nowhere. The fruit of natural talent or perhaps a good mood or alignment of the stars. And it would be an immense help to clear up that mystery. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I've heard that before. You know, you say, oh, this person is just they're born with a natural gift. And, and what would you say to that? It's, it's BS. BS. You're allowed yeah. to say bullshit, too, okay, by I the way. Know, I didn't know. <laughs> it's total bullshit. Yeah. Um, you know, who's, who's the icon for that? Mozart. Yes. I mean, who? Great who? example, by the way, in your book, yeah. uh, the way you wrote about his story. Yeah. And I love how you use real life examples. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, he's the poster child for, he was born that way. At five years old, he wrote a symphony. You know, what can you say about that? He was a prodigy, he was born that way. Well, it's not true. First of all, he came from a musical family. His mother was a pianist and his father was his actual teacher. So when he was, this is, people have written about this. Yeah, I mean, he had a six-year-old sister, didn't he, who was, was better than him, or was playing. Yeah, yeah, she was better than him early on, and he was very jealous of her, and he was determined to become better better than she, and they, they would go on tours in Europe and perform together. That's right. Like these little kind of trained monkeys. But people said he was hearing music in his womb, in the mother's womb. He was hearing his father play, and he was hearing his mother play. Music was, it was absorbing 10,000 hours before he was even born. <laughs> and then he's two years old and he's tinkering on the piano. 
And by the time he's eight, because he loved music so much, he had put in his 10,000 hours. But the thing is, he wrote pieces when he was young, and people think, well, he was a dance but they're not very good. They're juvenile, they're immature, there's no complexity to them. But they, people who've studied him have demonstrated that by that 10,000 hour point, he was about 16 years old, which is amazing to think that he got there that young. And suddenly his first great, really truly great symphonies and piano pieces were composed because he had, things were starting to fit in his brain and things could get more complex. And so it's a myth that he was just born that way. It's just that he started learning earlier than anyone else. And I make the point, when we were young, our brains are much more fluid and open. Right? Yeah, like a sponge. It's like a sponge. Yeah. So if you took anybody who had 10,000 hours of work before they're 16, they'll do what Mozart right. did. Tiger Woods, he's two years old, and he sees his father hitting a golf club in the garage against right. a net. He's like screaming with joy. He's never seen anything so exciting. Right. He's two years old and he starts hitting a golf ball. And he's, he's so in love with it, he keeps hitting it over and over. Well, no wonder he's going to turn into Tiger Woods. Yeah. Obviously, he had some physical, I'm not saying I would have turned into Tiger Woods, but I would have probably turned into a pro golf player if I had that energy and that excitement. You know, so it's a function of being young, being open-minded. And what, he was so motivated by, by being as good as his sister, because yeah. he saw his sister getting attention. So what those triggers are to make you want to do something. To, you know, what was it about Tiger Woods that made him want to please his father because he knew his father got so much joy out of him playing? Well, because you need that too, don't you? Oh, completely. But you can't, the, the joy and the pleasure can't come from wanting to please other people because there'll be moments when other people aren't going to be around. Right. Your father may pass away, um, whatever. It I, I meant in terms of just in terms of, of wanting to do it initially. Yeah. Like the, the desire to- well, The desire to is absolutely critical because <clears throat> if, he, if Mozart had only played music because his parents were musicians, because they made him do it, he wouldn't have turned into Mozart. He had this love of music. Yeah. So literally his father had to force young Wolfgang to go to bed at night. Right. Because the kid and wanted to And that doesn't keep, happen with kids who learn No, it doesn't happen with kids. He wanted to keep playing until his fingers were going to fall off. Yeah. He had to force him to, to play and get, out of the, get away from the piano. He loved music. It was his whole life. It was a joy, you know. Tiger Woods loved golf ball. Golf, he loved the sound of the golf ball. He loved the sensuality of it. He loved the grass and the, the whole feeling of, of the game of golf appealed to him. Yeah. There was a deep emotional connection. I talk about in this book, with all of these great figures, you'll find a lot of them had these moments in childhood. Yeah, that moment that I think, was it um, Einstein with his compass? Yeah. When he saw that and he saw that force, he realized that was something he so-called was gravitated towards, right? I mean, he, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help it's myself. Right. I walked right into that. One, I, I fell right into it. Yeah. Uh, could you feel the force? No, okay. All right. So uh, all of these people have had something in their life that has then propelled them on a path. Yeah, so he sees a compass and he sees that something that is invisible is moving the needle, which is a magnetic force. And he's fascinated by this concept of something moving and you can't see what's moving it. And so that becomes sort of like a lifelong obsession 
with invisible forces and what's behind them until he becomes the most brilliant person ever in the history of mankind to, to describe what is completely invisible and completely counterintuitive to our senses, you know, the theory of relativity, etc. You know, and you can see these moments in other people. I, I get very frustrated and upset when I see particularly teenagers who are being steered a certain way by their parents or their family. And, and I feel it can be incredibly destructive. They think they're doing the right thing for their kid, but they're not really listening to the child or right. identifying and helping that child find that calling, that passion. Right. Go get the degree and you can fall back on, you can always fall back on that qualification. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, so that if, if there's a calling, there's also a voice. There's a voice inside of you that's calling you towards this thing. Some people, it's very strong very strong like the people we've talked about and nothing that your parents do or say is going to dissuade you from that or what people think about you you know that this is what you were intended for and you're not going to let anybody push you off course i know i felt that way about writing when did you realize that you were going to be a word i love books when i was about eight years old i got this form in my elementary school where i could check off these books that I could order for like 50 cents each and I checked off every single book in the whole damn pamphlet my parents were really upset with me and like 50 little paperback books came in the mail and I had to read every single cost your parents a fortune (laughs) I had to read every single one of them I love books and I love literature and I wanted to write and I wanted to be a writer and I wrote a novel when I was about nine years old but um so some people don't have that voice is not as strong they um, maybe knew when they were younger that they wanted to play, they were good at sports or they were good at music, but then, but it's not as strong. The connection isn't as visceral. And then they hear their friends saying, oh, you don't want to do that. And they hear their teacher saying, you're not good. You need to do this. And they hear their parents and they lose connection to that thing that they had when they were a child mm. that, that, that Einstein had or Mozart or or, or Steve Jobs, and they Leonardo da Vinci, w- w- one of the stories that you yeah he's the, the icon there. for the oh. book. Um, wow, yeah he you know he knew he wanted to draw and he knew that he was enamored with nature and he was interested in everything. I love the way you thread his story into the book about the fact that his father had paper, which was not something readily available to a lot of people, but his because of his father's job, he actually had access to paper. Right. And then he had this passion to sit down and draw, and people didn't really draw things. No. They, they drew people and portraits. Yeah. And now he, was, he would sit down and, and draw. I mean, that story, yeah. hands down, the most fascinating life story. Oh, thank you. Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the paper was a very unusual thing back then. His father was a notary, so he had to have paper around. And they lived near these woods, and he loved Leonardo, was an illegitimate child, so he didn't have a lot of friends. He didn't wasn't going to a proper he, school. He didn't have the same privileges as, as some of the other kids in terms of opportunity, right, right. too, because of the stigma of class. That's right, he couldn't go to university, he couldn't become a lawyer or a doctor. Because they just mandated that, oh, you're illegitimate. So That's you're- right. So he, he went, he'd like to take long walks in nature. And one day he just has this weird idea. I'm going to put some paper in a rucksack and I'm going to carry it with me when I, on one of my long walks. And he just sat, he started sitting there and he started drawing flowers that kind of obsessed him. 
And there were certain scenes in the woods that he loved, like the waterfall, like certain blue flowers, certain things captured his eye. And he wanted to be able to, to draw them because he found in drawing them, he understood what made them work. He was obsessed with what, what was inside things, what made a flower alive. What made a bird fly, how right. the wings worked. And right, so by drawing them, he could understand them. This is a 10-year-old child, a 9-year-old yeah. child. And he became so good at, at rendering things like that that when it finally his father realized that he was brilliant at it, he was able to place him in a, a studio yes. with a famous artist where he could apprentice. And, and in those days, as an apprentice, you were, would draw like the wings on a bird in someone's giant painting. You, that's all you did. And he was so good at drawing little landscapes and bits of landscape that he got into one of the best studios and was able to do that on and on and on and on. But, you know, so there's some luck involved. If his father didn't have paper, if he didn't live near the woods, you know, he wouldn't, who knows what would have happened. So there's interesting things like that. If Madame Curie's father wasn't a chemist, who knows what would have happened. If Einstein didn't get that compass in his yeah, hands. Yeah, yeah, he would have gone to his father's business and worked in the... So. I, I do want to, uh, you, you said that all of us were, all of us are essentially born with the same brain, more or less the same configuration and potential for mastery. Uh, and, and that, going back to what you said before, that just really makes you think about the, the, the opportunities that people have and where people say, oh, it, circumstances don't make any difference to where someone's going to end up. You know, it has no effect. But of course it does. I mean, like you said, just Leonardo da Vinci having access to paper, that changed the course of his life. Yeah. So providing opportunity for those who don't have it is, it's important. But one of the most interesting stories in the book, for me at least, or examples that I like to point out, is Temple Grandin. Yes. And the reason is, people will often whine and say, well, Mozart, of course he's Mozart, of course these people, you know, they're great. His father was a, was a musician and he had music yeah. in the house. And I didn't have anything, how can, you know, why, you know, I'm not going to be able to, 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 you know, why, 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 why. But Temple Grandin was born as severely autistic. She was going to be committed to a hospital for her entire life. She couldn't learn language. She, she was way out on the spectrum. And her, fortunately, she had a, mother, a very loving mother who decided to get her a kind of a speech therapist. because She thought if somehow Temple could learn how to speak, maybe she could turn her life around. And the speech therapist kind of worked a miracle. And she slowly learned how to talk. And she was able to go to school at about the age of six. And she was very strange. She knew she was a very strange child. But she was able to function. And she realized early on that she had this incredible connection to animals and this love of animals. She was like Dr. Doolittle. She could understand the language of animals. She could Empathy. Empathy. And um, she went on to become a brilliant animal behaviors, a scientist, world-renowned. And one of the most interesting things about her is she writes books on autism. And one of the things about autism is most autistic people lack the ability to introspect, to think about themselves, to look mm -hmm. inside, to look inward. And here she's one of the most brilliant a analysts of autism itself. So she's a counterexample of someone who starts with 
certainly worse circumstances than you out there in the world. I can't think of anybody who has more against them, more handicaps. Severely autistic, can't learn language, can't go to school, is trapped in this interior world. And here she turned into this brilliant scientist. I met Temple Grandin. She's an amazing woman. She's fully functional. Yes, she's strange for sure, but I'm strange too. I've got some strange qualities. But stop whining. If this person can find her way to a life's task and create something brilliant for herself, I don't see why anybody out, because the brain is designed for mastery. We all have that potential for it. I, I love in the book where you talk about the, the idea of apprenticeship and then over a period of years, you slowly build up to become a master builder or a master right. plumber. And I open up this uh, little, um, it was a little article just talking about the trades, a loss of trades in America. And it had a picture of this guy, let's call him Jim, 25, uh, yearly salary, $100,000 welder. And then on the other side, it says Bob, and he's 25, $100,000 student debt, can't find a job. Right. right. And we're living in a time where these this skilled trade labor is so lacking but there's such a stigma and and yet there's such a they've been such a valuable part of talking about going back in human history masons builders yeah all of these like your father or was it your grandfather well, my, my grandfather yeah my grandfather was a was a master mechanic my other grandfather's a carpenter uh i come from working class people but I grew up with my dad talking with such admiration for people in the trades. And yet today, there's sort of a stigma attached to anybody who's in the trade. Like somehow, if you're a plumber and you're really good, it doesn't matter whether you're really good at it, it's less than something. What, what it's a terrible is, thing. You know, this is a definite and very important part of human intelligence. And you're right, it's, it's looked down upon, it's scorned as something less sophisticated or, you know, as if it's a lower form of intelligence. But this is who our ancestors were. This is what made us human. The most incredible bit of complexity in the human body is our hands. Mm. The amount of neurons and brain power that goes into using our hands is incredibly sensitive. And believe me, I know about it now because I had my stroke and I lost control of my left hand. And I have to relearn everything. I have to learn, relearn how to move any finger I can't type or anything. So I understand very much by what I lost, the complexity of the human hand. It's an absolutely brilliant piece of evolutionary design. Perhaps the most incredible thing ever, if we didn't have our, ha our hands the way they're designed now, we wouldn't be who we are. It's a form of intelligence. And our brains developed for two things. For socializing, for people, that's probably why we became so intelligent, and for making tools. And tools were all about observing somebody else chip away at a rock and create a, an axe or, or something like that, and then being able to reproduce it. And so manual dexterous skill is a high form of intelligence, even to this day. You talk about life's tasks, and you said you possess a kind of inner force that seeks to guide you toward your life tasks, what you're meant to accomplish in the time that you have to live. and. People who live with purpose, they feel like they're not working. And you talk about the fact that it's sad when people say, oh, well, I'm working 
so that I can then have money to then go do the things I really want to do as opposed to I'm really doing the things I want to do. I really right. want to write. I really right. want to be involved in science, a, 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 a vocation instead of work and then pleasure. Right. Well, one of the key things that I try and talk about in books and when I talk to people in my consulting, et cetera, is your notion of pleasure. What your relationship to what you think is pleasure will determine a lot of what we're talking about here. So a lot of people, their only idea of pleasure is in the immediate, is instant gratification. They need constant stimulation. They need shock. They need surprises. They need video games. They need movies. They need going out with friends. That's what gives them this kind of extroverted, constant renewal, this jolt of pleasure that makes them feel alive, right? And if that's it's almost like a drug, it's like a drug, yeah. And if that's the determining pattern of your life, you're never going to take the first step towards mastery because mastery requires patience and absorption and concentration. But look at it this way if you expand your notion of pleasure, maybe not just instant, but maybe a month down the line, and eventually six months down the line, and eventually a year down the line. What I'm talking about is if you spent a year working on a project, writing a book, mm. creating a film, it's going to be boring and tedious, and you can see your friends out there partying and playing games and having more fun than you. But the year is over. You've sold your movie. You feel incredible pride that you did this. You show that you have this capacity. Now suddenly money is coming to you and that your friends have wasted all this time. It's a much richer pleasure, that sense of fulfillment, than came from those little 300 little sparks of pleasure that you spur spaced out over the course of the year. Now you have something deep and lasting, and it will lead to something else in your life. It will lead to more patterns, to more building, to more creating, to richer and richer, richer forms of fulfillment. So you might think that distracting yourself constantly is kind of fun, and it might be when you're in your 20s, but it won't be so much fun when you're 36 or 38, you'll start being boring. You'll start like turning to drugs and alcohol or become a sex addict or pornography or whatever it is. You'll start getting angry and frustrated and bitter and you won't know the reason. And then you know you're in your 50s, you never discover what you wanted to do in life and you know, you're dealing with some dark emotions there. And um, you know, I, Da Vinci, I have a quote from Da Vinci saying, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but just like this great feeling you have at the end of a day that you've worked hard and mm. got something, so it is that feeling at the end of your life that you worked hard and you build these things. You can die, it's kind of like a feeling of blessing and death doesn't hurt you. But the feeling that you're going to die and you've done nothing is to me a terrible, terrible, terrible thought that I want all of you out there to avoid. So what is your relationship to pleasure? Is it I've got to get immediate things or can I defer that for at least, I'm not saying to be a monk. Mm. The process of mastery, one month of devoted labor will start paying off. There'll be some rewards. They won't be great rewards, but they'll pile up. And I try and build into your apprenticeship. I talk about this, building into it small rewards so you don't give up. But then after your four years, five years, seven years, man, the rewards are going to be great. And you're going to be ha experiencing a level of pleasure that no one else knows. For me, it was writing. I couldn't figure out what form of writing. 
So I tried journalism first. I hated it, it wasn't me. Then I thought I would write the great American novel and I wandered around Europe with my backpack. Nothing came of it. Then I thought I would write theater and screenplays and I came to Hollywood and I didn't like Hollywood, but I kept doing it. A lot of times people are just not to pre prepared to put in that self-exploration, which I think right. is part of why your book is great because it does really get you to look inward yeah. and, and start to analyze who you are. And like you said, get your ego in check and then start to think about what you're going to do. Right. And people people say, to, you know, like last year I didn't have a lot of time off and people say, well, don't you get sick of working all the time? And I go, well, I don't really feel like I work. Right. I mean, I really, I do things that I would actually pay to do. Right. <laughs> but right. I get paid to do them. Right, right. Because that's how much I, I, that's, I love it. That's sort of the ideal, isn't it? Yeah. You say uh, so many people enter a particular field with a lot of excitement and then uh, the biggest danger, of course, is then boredom and impatience, fear, confusion, and people give up. Yeah, that resilience that you talk about of, of being uncomfortable, it's a little bit like what an athlete can do when they're uh, an endurance runner or a marathon runner where they can sit in that pain and, then, and just endure it and they train their bodies and the minds to sit there. It's like you forcing yourself into the chair researching when you probably would love to be doing something else. Right. But you know you have to do it. Yeah, well, it's part of the thing of, of, of trusting the process. I talk in the book about the great basketball player, Bill Bradley. You're, yeah. He's, he's white, which is already kind of strange. Um, and he went to Princeton and he became a New York Nick in the late 60s, and then he became a United States Senator. He had mm. a political career as a Democrat. Um, he was very brilliant, he was a Rhodes Scholar, et cetera. But Bill Bradley loved basketball from very early on, kind of like Tiger Woods and, and golf. But he realized that the only thing he had going for him was that he was tall. He couldn't jump very well. He wasn't physically gift, nearly as gifted as other people. He just loved the game. So he put himself through the most intensely tedious and boring practice routines that he invented in order to make himself a better basketball player. So he would set up chairs in his, in his little room and he would dribble in between the chairs until he could do it without ever having looked down at his hand. He created these glasses that he could not- Had like blinders on them. Yeah, he could only see forward, he couldn't look down. And one time, he was so single-minded, his family went on a cruise, and he took the this incredibly long alleyway on the, on the cruise ship down on a lower deck. And he wore those glasses and he dribbled, you know, 200 yards and back, back and forth with his blinders on to teach. So what happened was, through all this practice, is he could dribble incredibly well without ever looking down. And people said Bill Bradley was like a magician. He could make passes that nobody ever made before, that he could see things that were going on that nobody saw because he never had to look down. He was, he was always able to use his sight for reading the game. Yeah. and um, he, he was, was in the flow. Completely. But think of all the incredible boring hours he put into that. But, you know, he, and I tell people this, if you can be creative with your practice, if you can come up with things, ways to kind of, so he was very creative with these boring routines that he made, and he probably had some fun doing them, you know, like kids would make things like that. Well, you, you, you say that uh, the, the, the idea of 
diversity of ideas where where you you follow your curiosity you learn something and maybe you end up going and doing a retreat meditation or something and then that somehow applies to other things that you're doing in other parts of your life like you just constantly remaining yeah. curious trying new things yeah. reading new books talking to new people yeah and then you can draw on all of that it's like you've got a toolbox of right. all of this stuff as long as there's an overall direction yes you're not scattered but yeah that is the future because what we can learn on the internet i mean I, there's a lot of things that the internet's bad for but the one thing that it's absolutely great and phenomenal for is learning, learning skills, yeah. exposing yourself to ideas. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, if I was in charge of the, the Board of Education, I would be taking the two books of yours that I've read, and I can't wait to read the others. I would be saying, this should be mandatory. This should be in the syllabus. I mean, you've, you've left something or given a gift to, to millions of people to open oh, their you. eyes up. and for that thank you for oh, yeah. for taking the time to do it well thank you i mean yeah, I it's a this. huge accomplishment and yeah. uh i i think it is a book that w will last for for generations just because of the fact that you've you've uncovered a lot and distilled so much thank you for reading all those all those books you are a true master <laughs> You are a true master. Wherever that curiosity came from, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. So, you know, the the research part is, which I'm doing in my new book, is the most fun because I just wander and wander. And one book, it's like a, a maze. In one book, there'll be a reference to another book. Yes. And I go, wow, that sounds really interesting. And I buy it. And it's, it is interesting. And there's a reference to another book. And suddenly the shelves are filling up. And I've got, um, oh my God, I've got 200 books to read. Give them enough. Oh, my poor wife. <laughs> well, we've got, I've got th four huge bookshelves in my office, three floor to ceiling bookshelves in the living room, uh, a lower bookshelf in the dining room, a floor to ceiling bookshelf in the den with another, you know, I mean, they're like, about, and then we've got like five bookshelves in the garage. <laughs> You like books. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Books. Yeah. Um, Robert, it's been such a pleasure talking to oh, you. Oh, thank you, Phil. I really appreciate Pleasure's your time and staying a little extra. And feel we feel very uh, lucky to have you come oh, in. Oh, well, thank you so much. Uh, uh, so I normally ask two questions at the end of the interview. Yeah. And one of them is uh, if you were going to take a road trip across America and you could take anybody from any time in history in the car with you, uh, three people. Take three passengers. Uh, I, I'm figuring Leonardo da Vinci might be somebody who yeah, you might want to sure. hang out with. Sure, <laughs> definitely. Somebody from ancient Greece or the ancient world. I'd have to figure out who that would be. Would it be Cleopatra? So Cleopatra, Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> so it's going to get kind of weird. You no, know, that's kind. Um, I think it's a good. Uh, they they they're not driving by the way because they don't know how to drive. Yeah. So you you could either get someone <laughs> yeah. who could drive from a modern time. You could take yeah. a jazz musician that you might like. Yeah, John Coltrane, that's true. Miles Davis, he's kind of cranky though. Is he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, yeah. compatibility. Can yeah. you imagine you get so sick of Leonardo da Vinci, you're like, hey, listen, you get out, you're walking. <laughs> Who knows? Find a chariot. Like. Really? <laughs> um, I think I pretty much covered it. 
Da Vinci, Cleopatra, and John Coltrane. Yeah, I think it's a good. That's a good car load. Yeah, maybe Kobe Bryant would be in the back seat somewhere. And then your last day on Earth, Robert. You you talk a lot about the thing that we all fear, which is our own inevitable death. Uh, what would you do with your last day on Earth if you knew you were going to live it up? I would be out in nature somewhere. I would be taking a hike somewhere, incredibly beautiful, and I would meditate and think back on you know the great life that I've led, and um, sort of try to find put myself in the state of acceptance. You know, get away from distractions. It'd be with my wife, maybe my sister and uh, force them to take some incredible hike with me. And you know, that'd probably be it. Robert, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much, Phil. Yeah, really, really great. Yeah, thank thank you. you, really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To see more great interviews, go to philcogan.com and subscribe to Bucket with Phil Kogan wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider rating and reviewing us and follow Bucket, that's Bucket with an IT, on Instagram and Facebook. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Phil Kogan. Today's podcast proudly brought to you by Bucket Nutrition. Great tasting, high performance nutrition to power your adventure. Don't forget to go to Amazon.com, search for Bucket Nutrition, and use promo code Bucket10, that's Bucket with an IT, and you'll get a 10% discount on all Bucket Nutritional products. Just wait until you try the Bucket Booster with Manuka Honey.